Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Out in the cold, out in the dark, something's lurking at the edge of the park. People be warned, people beware, there's a storm on the rise and it's covered in hair. Hear him cry, hear him howl, looking for someone to disembowel. Claws like a hook, eyes like coal, feet so big they're gonna crush your soul. They call him Sasquatch. Top of the morning to you. This is Sarah and you're listening to Yowie Central on 94.9 Main FM. Here at Yowie Central, we explore the latest on Yowie research in Australia. We hear Yowie witness testimonies and we talk to the experts. We also dive headfirst into paranormal encounters, UFOs and aliens, orbs, psychics, other cryptid creatures, and all sorts of mysterious phenomena. And we do this because there's all sorts of weird and mysterious shit going on in the world around us. And I want to know why and how it all works. And I'm sure you all really want to know that too. Second last show of the year, my friends, and I have an absolutely fascinating show lined up for you for this week and for next week. I'm excited to welcome Paul Wallace to the show for a two-part chat. Paul is an internationally best-selling author and documentary maker, creator of Fifth Kind TV and the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube. Paul's books probe world mythologies and ancestral narratives for their insights into human origins, human potential, and our place in the cosmos. I had just finished watching his excellent documentary, The Anunnaki Chronicles, Who or What is Controlling This World?, 
when I came across a couple of short documentaries he made regarding the origin of Sasquatch called Sasquatch, the Unsolved Ancient Global Mystery and Sasquatch, Primordial Secrets and Ancient Hybridization Programs. Now, Paul has some absolutely fascinating ideas as to the origins of our hairy friends. So I asked him if he would come and share those ideas with me and with the Yowie Central listeners. I hope you enjoy this spellbinding chat as much as I did. Here he is, Paul Wallace. Shall we start with then what your thoughts are on the origin of the hairy man that exists in many different cultures? There are stories going back eons of these beings. Would you like to give the Yowie Central listeners some of your thoughts on what the origins are of these beings? Absolutely. Well, my way into the topic has been through studying paleocontact. And that's the theory that our ancestors in the deep past had contact with other civilizations or what today we would call ETs. And my route into that was through studying the Bible. I was in ministry for 33 years. And one of my areas was training pastors in how to interpret ancient texts. And I approached that through looking at where have the texts come from? How do they differ from the source narratives? What do the words actually mean? And after doing that for about 30 years, I found there were some anomalies I really needed to drill down into that the the stories we're all familiar with from out of the Bible, for instance, stories that we tell as God's stories. There are some translation issues there that suggest they could be stories of something else. And so there were a few key words that when I got into the root meanings of those words, what emerged was a quite different storyline. And it was a storyline in which, in the deep past, there was more than one kind of hominid uh, walking around on the planet, and that we were all part of a shared story of evolution and development where there were interventions from other civilizations to finesse what they wanted from Homo sapiens. And so the picture began to fill out. And as I was doing that study, we were hearing more and more uh, in the mainstream media about new finds of different kinds of hominin and hominid in the deep past. And so the story of human evolution I grew up with in school of a, a single line of gradual improvement and improvement and improvement from Australopithecus until they get to you and me, that whole picture had rather broken down and there was a far more plural picture going on. And what I found from our ancestral stories echoed that proliferation of human-like beings and the correlations between cultures around the world all seemed to repeat the idea that our evolution was interfered with in a sequence of experiments that resulted in us plus a few others. And so it was that study that brought me back to the question of the Yowie, Sasquatch, Bigfoot, the Yeren, the Moihau, and thinking our ancestors actually had a framework for this story of 
where they came from and gives an explanation of why all cultures seem to have these stories of other kinds of people who live outside our towns and villages, the stories of the hairy people. You mentioned in the documentary that I watched that you put together on this subject that in the Bible, in in the book of Genesis, that there is a story of Abraham and Sarah. They had two children, was that right, when Sarah was quite old and it was perhaps something that was a genetic experiment? Well, the story of Abraham and Sarah in the Bible is really fascinating. They are one of a number of couples in the Bible who become pregnant through some anomalous event. It actually follows what we would call a close encounter. They have a close encounter with three beings the Bible calls Elohim. Now, the the word Elohim means powerful ones. And at first, it looks like Abraham and Sarah think they may be human beings. But as the story rolls on, you realize they're not human beings. There's something more advanced than that. This story echoes the Sumerian stories of the sky people. And those are stories of advanced beings from the stars coming to the planet, colonizing our planet and adapting our ancestors. So that parallel really caught my attention. In the Bible, you've got Abraham and Sarah, this happens to you. You've got the parents of Samson, the parents of John the Baptist, the parents of Jesus. The story is the same. They have a close encounter with this other kind of entity, and then the woman is pregnant with somebody significant in human history. The, the added layer to the Abraham and Sarah story is that it runs in parallel with a story from out of India, a story from the Vedas of Brahma and Saraswati. And you'll notice straight away, those are the same names, Abraham, Brahma, Sarah, Saraswati. Hmm. And in the Vedic tradition, Brahma and Saraswati are the progenitors of the human race. They are like an Adam and Eve uh, couple. Go back and look at Abraham and Sarah in that light, and you realize this is one of a whole number of stories of beginnings that is in the Bible. You've got, by the time you've got to the end of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you've read four stories of beginnings. That's a planetary reboot after a flood in Genesis 1, a story of genetic engineering in Genesis 3, a reboot after a flood in Genesis 6, the destruction of a spacefaring civilization in Genesis 11. And then in Genesis 12, we meet Abraham and Sarah and this whole new beginning. So I believe those are all stories of beginnings just layered on top of each other. And in Abraham and Sarah, we've got something like the Brahma and Saraswati story. In the Vedic tradition, they are called the, the, the father and mother of humanity. Abraham, in the Hebrew, we're told, means the father of the many nations or the father of the many peoples. So after their close encounter, and what were the details of that, you have to ask, because we're only given a summary form, uh, his wife, who is past childbearing, is suddenly pregnant, which is something to be explained in itself. Something artificial has happened. And then they produce a child. Isaac, and then Isaac produces two children, Jacob and Esau. Now, unless you're reading this in a a fundamentalist kind of way, where it's almost like diary entries, 
you read it as history, as science, letter by letter, that's what happened. You could read it that way. But if you read it with a broader question of what memory is being curated by this story, you realize what you have in front of you is a story of two different kinds of human being. Jacob, we're told, is smooth-skinned and intelligent, like us. And Esau, the brother, the one who came before, is bigger, stronger, hairier, in fact, covered in so much thick red hair that his father can't tell the difference between Esau's skin and the height of a goat. So that's pretty different. Yeah. And uh, Jacob is frightened of Esau because he's bigger and stronger, but he's smarter and he learns how to manipulate and control the hairy man with offerings of food. Now, when you reframe this and realize this is a story of beginnings, this is the story of the beginnings of humanity, you can then begin to reframe the story and think this is the story of how we, Homo sapiens, got the upper hand over the other kinds of hominid and human that were on the planet in the deep past. And the story takes on a totally different light when you read it in parallel with these other narratives from around the world. And from watching your your documentary, which was fantastic, you mentioned that the that story, that beginning story, pops up everywhere. Didn't you even mention, was it in Ethiopia? I think it was Ancient History of the Ethiopians. Also talk about sky people. Yes, there there are stories of sky people literally all around the world. And some of the African stories are, are really fascinating. There's, uh, you may be thinking of the Zulu story of Unkulunkulu, which says that life on Earth didn't originate on Earth, uh, that the life forms that we're familiar with on planet Earth arrived here in seed form and then grew here. That's how that story goes. And that's really intriguing because if you listen to DNA researchers, they uh, a, a lot of really senior, eminent DNA researchers, people like Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of the double helix of DNA, taught this. Or um, Carl Sagan was a huge enthusiast for this theory in the 1960s. Maxim Akufkov, Vladimir Sherbach top of their field with regard to the genetic code now they all held to this view told in that story and it's called panspermia that's the modern technical name for it the idea that the genetic coding for biological conscious intelligent life is actually throughout the cosmos not just on planet earth and that whenever it lands in an hospitable environment it will generate forms of life similar to the ones we're familiar with on planet Earth. Well, the Zulu people have this beautiful cinematic version of that story of the seed form of life landing on the planet in seed pods and then developing and then being released by Unkulunkulu, the first human. And when I read that story, I thought, hold on, haven't I seen this in a movie? And of course, you and I have probably seen that in a number of movies. It's yeah. such a cinematic idea and it's such a resonant idea. And it's a story that keeps resurfacing all around the world. If you go to Nigeria, you'll hear the story of Abasi and Atai. And we're told that they are beings from the stars who hover above the planet in what's described as an island in the sky. And 
by the way, Plato used exactly the same phrase, an island in the sky, to describe what we would call UFOs. And that these beings, Abassi and Atai, then went about genetic experiments to adapt the life that was already here on planet Earth to produce a working class. And it all starts sounding rather familiar because the Sumerians told the story. It's there in the Bible, if you translate it by the root meanings. It's there in the Mayan story from out of Central and South America. And there are versions of it that crop up all over the world. And it was the correlations that made me think, okay, maybe we need to look at these stories differently. Instead of reading them in a fundamentalist way or thinking that they're moral stories, which they don't really work as moral stories when you look at them that way. If you say, well, they all seem to be carrying the same memory. What is the memory? What did happen? And on, on top of the the stories repeating, the way these interventions are described strongly suggests that a visual memory has been carried by different cultures around the world, that different cultures have found different metaphor and different language to describe the same thing that was seen. And that was the thing that convinced me more than anything, that we are looking at ancient cultural memory carried in our world mythologies and ancestral narratives. What do you think was the the purpose for creating this working class? Well, if you read the Mayan story, it is so um, uh, blatant in the language it uses. This is the Popol Vuh. And the Popol Vuh contains the story beginnings of, of the Mayan people. We didn't know these stories until the early 1700s, when they were translated from the Quiche text by a uh, Dominican friar working in Guatemala, when Portugal and Spain had invaded and taken control of Central and South America, they had done their level best to delete and replace all the old stories with Roman Catholic orthodoxy. And so these earlier stories had, had gone underground, and yet they survived. In 1700, the successors of an ancient priesthood gave this text to uh, Francisco Jimenez, was the man's name, the Spanish-Dominican friar. And as he translated it, he realized there's this whole other story of human origins. And it talks about these beings arriving at, uh, over a flooded and devastated planet, shrouded in darkness. And almost all our creation narratives, so-called, begin that way on a planet that's been devastated by something and is flooded and shrouded in darkness, much as it would be after a comet impact or something of that nature, where the survival of life or civilization on the planet would absolutely hang in the balance. Well, the Popol Vuh says these visitors came from elsewhere and said, how do we repair this planet? And they talk about repairing the planet and then nurturing life and then nurturing intelligent life. And at some point during this long process, they say to each other, let's make avatars for ourselves to do the work for us and bring us our food. Uh, and that was the agenda. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> and, uh, absolutely. Every ruling class needs a working class. That's right. And you go to the Sumerian story, it's exactly the same. Retranslate the Bible story, it's exactly the same. 
through the pages of the Hebrew scriptures, you've got pictures of human colonies who are governed over by another kind of entity. And the human being's job is to do the work and bring the food to uh, the rulers. So same as it ever was. In the Sumerian story, they're very canny about this. And they say, if we can frame this um, this slavery that we're putting these new humans into, if we can frame it as something religious, these humans will actually count it as a virtue to slave for us and serve us. So there's this great cynicism in some of these stories. And it's one of the things that clues you that this is not a story that's been invented to aggrandize the powers or royal families or to aggrandize a particular culture. They're actually very demeaning stories. They, they don't flatter us and they don't flatter the visitors who engineered us. And it's one of the things that you look at when you study ancient texts. What's the purpose of the text? And there are some texts where it's very clear, oh, well, this was written to authenticate the Levitical priesthood. This was written to authenticate the Mosaic law. But you get to these stories and they really do seem to be curations of memory. Memories from a time when we did not have technology. We were in a more primitive state. And then we saw beings more advanced than ourselves, so advanced they could re-terraform our planet. And of course, if you see that, you're going to say, well, these are our superiors. Uh, of course, we will serve them. And I think that is where our, our whole framework of social order and serving superiors, where all that programming comes from. But the Popol Vuh is very honest that the visitors, and it describes them as those who engineer, which is a very interesting phrase, had a hard time getting us right. <laughs> and that it was a long experiment trying to get the kind of human beings who would be smart enough to be a useful workforce, but not too smart so that we wouldn't want to work for them. And the story says there were a number of failed attempts. So if you can imagine uh, engineering something like a gorilla, very strong, very capable, but has no interest in serving superiors, thank you very much. <laughs> it was that level of mistake they were making. And the Pope of Ouse says that this experiment resulted in us plus ape-like creatures who live in the forest. And when I read that in the Pope of Ouse, I thought, hold on a moment. Every culture around the world, it seems to me, has stories of ape-like creatures who live in the forest who are very similar to us, um, a similar level of intelligence, but a very different kind of creature. I live in Australia. And so, of course, we've got the Yowie stories. But I was familiar with the Bigfoot stories, the Sasquatch stories, uh, the Moihau, the Yaren, all these stories of the hairy man, the wild man. And all these thousands of years ago, our ancestors were saying, yes, well, we're related. Uh, they're distant cousins of ours because we both resulted from the same experiment. And the Popolver is really curious because Centuries before Charles Darwin, the Mayan story was saying that human beings and apes share a common ancestor. Not that we're descended from apes, but that we both share a common ancestor. And that goes for the ape-like creatures as well. And so that, that's the explanation there. It's there in the Abraham and Sarah story. It's there in the Popol Vuh that we and our hairy neighbors 
are somewhat related. But just as in the story of Jacob and Esau, the way we share the planet is largely by keeping out of each other's way. Because there is obviously a desire by the Yowie. Uh, there's so many names for them. I'll call them the Yowie. There's, uh, there's so many names for them even within Australia, but Yowie is kind of the, the most generic term. So there's an obvious desire to avoid human beings, avoid, hide from human beings. So I wonder where that, where that desire to avoid us completely originated. Did that start back way back then? Uh, did it start when human beings were, we, were, were human beings as aggressive then as they are now, as destructive then as they are now, do you think? Well, you know, a lot of animals like to keep out of our way, um, if you think about it. And it just might be part of that that story <laughs> as well. I It's interesting. When I did the um, documentary on the Paul Wallace channel about the Yowie, which was a few months ago, it was kind of a conversation starter. And then we did the longer version on the Fifth Kind TV. And again, it was sort of a conversation starter because – when I put that together, I was, I'd become convinced that these stories are, are about something real, that the stories of the hairy people all around the world are about something real, and that, yes, we, we probably do have yaois in Australia. I was a little bit agnostic as to how much evidence, strong evidence, there might be for that. But once I put those videos out, the response from the public was overwhelming. And I have been blown away by the personal testimony that I've heard as people have come in and made comments mm. on those videos. Yes. And um, there are three stories that really stick in my mind from people who contacted me. One very simple story about a group of young people who went camping and they had a perfectly happy camp until one morning they got up, went down to the river for water and there was this footprint in the mud by the side of the water. And they didn't stay there after that because it was very <laughs> obvious what that footprint was. Yeah. Very simple story. Um, this lady wasn't telling me to make herself famous or sound impressive or make money. It was simply what happened to them. And then I heard another story from a family who had uh, gone camping and they were in their tents in the middle of the night when they heard something very heavy on two feet walking around their tent. And if that wasn't frightening enough, they described this horrible, acrid, burnt metal-type smell that was clearly a, an animal smell, and yet this was a, a bipedal creature walking around their tent. They didn't see it. They heard it and they smelt it and they were absolutely terrified and they didn't stay a second night. And obviously, that was a very vivid memory and experience. And then the third story that stuck with me was from a, a policeman in the Blue Mountains. Mm -hmm. And he simply said, well, of course, officially, um, the Yowie doesn't exist, but you won't find anyone in the police force here who doesn't know about them. I thought, okay, yes, this is beginning to add up. <laughs> Actually, you, you, you're on. asking about keeping away from us. Uh, I read more and more of these stories, and more and more I was hearing this 
story of rocks being banged together as a signal from the Yowie, I am here, don't come any closer. And I, I, I think I must have gone pale when I first read that story because when I first moved to Canberra about 20 years ago, I used to love getting out into the bush on my own, <laughs> just uh, walking through the bush, enjoying the Australian landscape so different to where I'd been living before. And every so often I would hear rocks being banged together. And at first I thought, oh, that uh, must be a woodpecker or something, or maybe some other bird trying to open a nut or something. But then I noticed, no, those are rocks. And actually those rocks are getting closer. <laughs> and there was one time when the rocks got so close and I couldn't see anything that I did start to feel a bit freaked out. And so I got, went back to the car and left. I didn't know anything about the Yowie stories when I had that experience. <laughs> so all these years later, when I'm hearing rocks bang together means don't come any closer, you might like to leave. And I think, oh, crumbs, how much <laughs> danger I put myself in. I mean, not. I had no idea. I didn't have a mobile phone. I could have been bitten by a snake. Or I could have had a Yowie encounter <laughs> and I'd have, uh, I'd have really been in trouble. But it absolutely um, was something I recognized at that point. And the volume of these stories has convinced me not only that they're out there, but that, as you would know, probably better than anyone, um, there is a huge amount of data if we're willing to listen to eyewitness report uh, from around Australia. Yeah. And if we're simply willing to take eyewitness report at face value, it's very clear we've got company, but company with a creature that does not want to invade our towns. It wants us out of its territory. You're listening to internationally best-selling author and documentary maker Paul Wallace on Yowie Central on 94.9 Main FM. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since I started doing this work two and a half, three years ago, I have interviewed now for Australian Yowie Research. Uh, I, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you the number, but many, many, many witnesses. And when you speak to people, repeating often very similar experiences, 
similar descriptions of creatures, similar rock clacking, rocks being thrown at them, footsteps, uh, tree structures, stick structures, growls, red glowing eyes at night, that that foul stench that's sulfuric at times, that's rotten eggs and Mm -hmm. people describe it as often being so pungent it makes them feel like they need to, to vomit. All of those things just keep getting repeated over and over again. And, and I speak to people who are genuinely terrified, people who have been so frightened they thought they were going to die, really thought they were going to, like, this was it, this is the moment that I'm going to die. So I, I agree with you. Once, you. once you take into account all of those witness testimonies, you, the only conclusion that I can draw, I haven't seen one myself, but the only conclusion that I can draw is that we do have company. <laughs> They're out there, absolutely. Um, I agree, and I think the fact that the the testimony that's shared is so often from people who said they were terrified. I remember a truck driver talking about an encounter that he had. He was in the cabin of his truck. He wasn't out face-to-face with the thing, and yet he described his encounter as the worst thing that had ever happened to him. So people aren't boasting when they share these stories. Oh, yeah, I saw one. It's not that kind of spirit in which a lot of these stories are told. Mm. It was a harrowing experience that made them feel tiny, petrified, and in a lot of cases, as you say, they, they thought they were going to die. Yeah, yeah. Actually, literally thought that that this is the time I'm I'm going to die. So when you have a an experience like that, you you generally don't uh, you don't go running around boasting about it, and you know it's particularly with this subject where the vast majority of the, the our society doesn't believe in the existence of these creatures. When you when you've been so frightened. Sometimes that you 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 lose control of your bladder like that frightened. I, I spoke yeah. to uh, yeah. someone not that long ago, a couple of months ago, who actually lost control of his bladder while he was running, like sprinting for his life. You're opening yourself up to all sorts of ridicule if you tell people as well. Of um, course, but it's odd this ridicule factor because if you go back to the 1800s. Yowie sightings were reported very differently. Uh, Newspapers would carry stories of another gorilla sighting Mm. or or language like that. And it was just told as, oh, you know, Farmer McCarthy sighted another gorilla on his property last week. He was with, you know, such and such a person. This is the second sighting this year. And it would just be a news item. It wouldn't be the joke item. And I wonder what's happened in our culture that we could tell the stories just at face value in the 1800s and that now there's this whole, are you stupid to believe this uh, sort of feeling around the story? How have we got from there to here? I, I find that very strange, and especially when these stories are ages old. If we're willing to listen to... The original Australians, with respect, the story of the Yowie, goes way back. Why would we not take it seriously? And particularly since there's a huge proportion of Australia that is essentially unexplored even to this day, why is it so 
much of a stretch to say there may be creatures in there that we've not yet catalogued, given that we didn't catalog the mountain gorilla until the 20th century. We thought that was a cryptid. We thought that was a myth. So why do we struggle with the idea there might be this creature that we haven't properly acknowledged or catalogued? Well, we seem to think that we have catalogued everything. There seems to be this misconception that we we know everything now. It's all done. It's all done and dusted, Uh, which is is quite odd, as you said, considering how we, we, we are still discovering new species today. So, so the idea that, yeah, that we, we're convinced that nothing, that certainly can't exist. And if you did see it, you're, you're crazy or you're delusional. Um, we, to be fair, it throws up more questions. You know, discovering a new kind of butterfly doesn't throw up the same questions as discovering <laughs> the Yowie. Correct. Because uh, there is no wider family tree on Australian soil. We don't have monkeys. We don't have great apes. So as soon as you acknowledge the Yowie, you are acknowledging there's this huge swathe of information that we don't have about our place on the planet and where these came from and how they relate to us. You really do have to go back to the drawing board and and say, okay, let's think again about where we all came from. But I personally don't think that should be so hard now, now that we're acknowledging there's a far more plural story to humanity than we previously thought. Now that we know there's us, there's the Neanderthals, there's the Denisovans, there's the Dragon Man, there's the hobbits from Indonesia, there was this far more plural picture. If we're willing to say, actually quite recently, uh, uh, in a time scale measured by thousands of years, there were various kinds of hominid. The moment we say that, can't we say, and one of them might have been the hairy man. Yes, but I think, I think part of the issue is that the hairy man has been depicted for quite some time, maybe since the the fifties, as some kind of monster, rather than just another being on the planet. A monster that's that's also depicted as an apex predator, way more, way stronger and more dangerous than human beings. So I think part of the problem is that we have this Hollywoodized monster uh, idea in our society about these beings that make it it's too scary to admit that they I, might yeah, exist. I think that's you've hit the nail on the head Sarah I think I think it's too scary uh, for a lot of us to look at and ridicule is how we deal with something that oh I don't want to have to think about that that kind of reaction yeah. so I mean I find that when I talk about paleocontact being in a populated universe possibility we might be in contact now there are lots of people happy to consider the idea but for a lot of people there's this real visceral no no i can't think about that it is too scary and so my defense is to laugh at it yeah i think that that's part of what we see we know that the police are fully aware that these beings exist the government knows they exist the park rangers know they exist why can't they officially admit that these beings are out there we get asked that a lot and I think part of it is that is that societal fear but it's also it might then affect national parks and protecting their habitat and logging concerns and mining concerns and uh, real estate concerns I think there's also a lot of that that 
lack of willingness to 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 go there and believe in these beings is officially believe it officially announce that we we believe these beings exist is there are other interests involved that's very true and there's a really interesting attempt made in the united states just recently to get um bigfoot registered as a protected species mm. And um, to some that might might sound like a joke, but the attempt was to get the case for Bigfoot into courts of law so that the evidence could could come out into the open that way and actually be assessed in the way we assess all legal evidence. I think that was a really interesting exercise. And Mm. he was arguing exactly what you were just saying, that if, if they're there, we need to protect their habitat. So let's assess whether they're there. Unfortunately, he was not successful. I forget the guy's name yes, I, in that I, attempt. Hmm. But it's, it's, it's the same as what you were just saying, which is, I, I think, quite a nice way of, of going at it. We yeah. should try that here. Yeah, yes, we should. <laughs> we should. I mean, I, I do. Mean, if, I get... if you had police witnesses willing to come forward, that would uh, be really interesting. Absolutely. But, you know, trying to get a serving police officer to come forward with that sort of stuff is a, a little it's bit challenging. A challenge. But we do, yes. as I said, we do get contacted by them. We, we are contacted by people in the army, people in the military who, who, have, who have stories from military bases uh, around the country. Uh, but obviously they can't go on the record. Uh, but they, but it's, they're, they're happening. They're, those encounters, those sightings uh, are definitely happening all over the place. And it's great. I, I, I like the fact that in Australia we do have some fairly eminent people who are willing to go on the record and say, yes, I saw one. Yeah, yes. And in particular when it's group sightings, when whole groups of people have seen exactly the same thing and can tell you what the thing was they saw. Yeah, you're talking about Bill O'Chee, the senator. Bill O'Chee is probably one of the most yeah. senior, isn't he? Yes. Absolutely. And that was a whole school trip. You've got school teachers and kids and it was a sighting. I think it went on for about half an hour where they were interacting with this creature. Yeah, and he's still he's still happy to stand by that, you know, uh, all these years later. Uh, we need more people like that who've got a public profile, I guess, doing that. Definitely. But it's funny, this this reluctance to accept the possibility. I grew up in the UK where we don't have yowies, but uh, we do have big cats. Uh, there are black panthers that live wild in the UK, and the public know this because they keep seeing them. Yeah. Farmers in Devon know this because they keep seeing them. And uh, there was one shot uh, a couple of decades ago. Um, and yet, every time a sighting story makes its way to the news, there will be an official response. And the official response will initially be, must have been a domestic cat uh, or a feral cat that grew a bit large. And then from time to time, enough people will come forward or there'll be a photograph to say uh, no. And so then the official story goes to the next level, which is must have escaped from a zoo. Now, I always found this absolutely absurd because what is more frightening or reassuring? Isn't it more reassuring to say, well, yes, there are black cats, but they largely keep away from people. They, They never cause any bother apart from the occasional sheep. Don't worry about it. Or we've got black cats that have escaped from zoos prowling around the cities. I mean, really, it doesn't make sense. 
but it's a lovely illustration of how often there is an indigenous knowledge, a grassroots knowledge. The people know we have black cats, mm. big black cats. The official story is there are none. And this sort of applies to many stories the world over, including the Yao. It's part of a much bigger pattern where if you want to know the truth, you ask the locals. Yeah. You don't ask the council no, no. <laughs> or the PM. No. Well, and we, we, ask the people who live there. Ask yeah, the locals. And exactly. I think if you, you frame it that way, uh, people think, well, of course you'd ask the locals. Well, ask the locals in Australia, and I think the case for the Yowie is overwhelming. Absolutely. We do get black cat stories all the time too. We're not supposed to have black panthers here, but we they're, they're happening all over the country. It's really it's quite interesting. Often people who report to me that they've seen Yowies also say, "Oh, and I saw a, a, a huge black cat too." There's no and and exactly the official explanation is, "Oh, it must have escaped from the zoo or a travelling circus back in the day." Uh, you know, it's like people are still reporting these these black cats everywhere. I really don't mind if they are descended from cats that escape from zoos or circuses, <laughs> but can we just acknowledge that they're there? Yes, yeah. Speaking of, uh, you just mentioned that you don't have yowies in the UK. I had someone contact me from Salford near Manchester not that long ago, who in the he was up late, he's a computer coder, so he was up talking to people in other countries uh, quite late at night, looked out the window of his first floor apartment and saw a Bigfoot-like creature across the road, eight foot tall, hairy, long dangly arms. It, it, he wow. noticed it was looking up at him and showed its teeth at him. So whether it was smiling or snarling, probably snarling, we don't, <laughs> we don't know, but it then turned around and loped, ran, but, you know, dangly arms in a very strange the gate was very strange. The yes. knees weren't locking properly. It was kind of, and it ran up a hill yeah. and disappeared. So that was in the middle of Salford, which is, which I believe is now almost part of Manchester. It's, it's. Uh, well, yeah, that's not the Australian bush, that's for sure. No. It's, it's a metropolitan area. And uh, I'm really interested to hear that story. I mean, it really in, reinforces just how global these stories are. And it intrigued me rereading the Jacob and Esau story that there is this element of a sort of f fear from us towards them and this standoff of we stay out of each other's way that's a big part of the Jacob and Esau story and I've never really quite understood what that was about until I put that in the context of all these other hairy man stories from around the planet so I think my guess is it wasn't a smile, that it is part of this, uh, I'm in my spot, you and yours, we'll keep it that way, okay? Yeah. He did say that there were big parks around there and that perhaps it was, you know, it had made its way into, into a large town, a city, on the outskirts of a city. Well, you know, Great Britain is really a very rural place. It has a lot of cities and a lot of towns, but the great bulk of Great Britain is countryside. Right. And uh, it's easy to forget because the people don't live in the countryside, not so much these days. 
But there is plenty of countryside for all kinds of creatures to be living in that we might not be bumping up against from day to day. I've always Same been in Australia, of course. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I've always been interested in the origins of the werewolf story because we do get stories here, mostly from the United States at this stage, but we do get some here of creatures that have more of a dog-like appearance, bipedal, but with more yes. of a dog-like appearance. Well, yes, there, there are a lot of stories about those uh, in the distant past as well. And it's an, another interesting parallel to what I was saying about 19th century Australian newspapers, because you will hear explorers uh, writing in their logs about encountering creatures like that in a very matter-of-fact way. And you'd read all the rest of the log as, yes, that, that happened in India, that happened when they were in Iran, uh, that happened when they were in Scotland. And then when you get to the bit when they were in Eastern Europe and they were seeing dog people walking around, all of a sudden you have to bracket that out and say, well, that's obviously a myth. Yeah. Well, on what basis? Yes. You've read the whole of the rest of the log. On what basis has it suddenly changed just because you haven't seen one? And I was talking to um, a, a U.S. researcher just the other day. I think it was um, I think it was Josh Turner uh, is his name, and he grew up in the states. And his dad was—I can't remember where his dad was from—but his his mum was Mexican, and had stories of cryptids that he always listened to with an "Oh, mum." sort of <laughs> attitude you don't believe in that do you and then when he was about 30 i think he saw one ah. and all of a sudden he realized that his oh mom attitude hadn't been based on anything scientific at all it was purely based on the fact that we don't talk about these things and i haven't seen one and yeah. i think if you're going to base your worldview on that you're going to live in a tiny little world but through the work i've done in, uh, with my books, Escaping from Eden and the Scars of Eden, I have learned to listen to people with a bit more respect than that because the stories that people share of sightings and encounters, they don't aggrandize themselves with those stories. And if those stories are the same as were told in the 1800s and all the way back tens of thousands of years, why wouldn't you listen to that with respect? And so it's just been a cumulative case for me as I've heard more and more and read more and more, gone into the deep past of cultures around the world. I think you really have to have a very, very strong reason not to take seriously a huge body of testimony. I mean, do we, some, do we somehow think that the people who were – uh, noting those creatures back then and making it and and writing about them, wh were they were they all delusional or were they somehow in the if you're in the past or if it's a long time ago you're not very intelligent or you you know yes <laughs> yeah I think that's it I think that is the big story that we, we believe that in the past people were stupid and yeah. now they're clever yeah yeah we are the clever ones and our ancestors were all all halfwits and so I'm always pleased when we discover artifacts from the distant past of saying well, how did they have this how did they have an electric battery in ancient egypt or how did they create this navigational device all these centuries ago how on earth did they line up these cities across thousands of miles across a, a mountain range in the andes 
And then you might remember we discovered uh, Otzi uh, in yes. the uh, in the glacier in the Alps, in, uh, up in the Alps. Mm. That's right. And the age he was, it was about five thousand years old. We thought he should have been in bearskins, wandering around, going ugh. And we discover <laughs> he'd cut his hair, he'd shaved, he'd had dentistry, he had a medical pouch. Uh, on his belt. He'd used all kinds of fabrics and stitchware. He was wearing insulated clothing. In other words, he was clever. And I think the more we discover these things, the more we have to realize that the storyline is not primitive humans to humans today. Humans have always been clever. And the moment you acknowledge that, that shines a light back on the mystery of how come? Where did that come from? And I think the the Yowie stories force us to ask those questions about our place on the planet. Where did they come from? Where did we come from? And how are we related? Because we clearly are. Paul Wallace from Fifth Kind TV. How amazing was that? Remember, if you've had an unusual experience that you'd like to get off your chest and share with the Yowie Central listeners, I'm taking submissions for next year's shows, so get in touch with me via yowiecentral at gmail.com or via the Yowie Central Facebook group. That's it for the penultimate show of the year, my friends. Yowie Central will be back next week for the last show of the year, same time, same place, on 94.9 Main FM. I'll catch you next week. Out in the cold, out in the dark, something's lurking at the edge of the park. People be warned, people beware, there's a storm on the rise and it's covered in hair. Hear him cry, hear him howl, looking for someone to disembowel. Claws like a hook, eyes like coal, feet so big they're gonna crush your soul. They call him Sasquatch. of your diamond ring your fancy jacket won't be worth a dime when you're sucking the blood right out of your spine
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.